because you're jumping back into the gut. All right. Hey, Coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Coaches, excited to welcome Boston Celtic assistant coach Jay Laranega with us to the podcast. Jay has been an assistant in Boston since 2012. He has head coaching experience with both the Erie Bayhawks of the G League and the Irish national team and uh, international experience with Ukraine as well. Coach, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I really enjoyed your Pro Coach Summit presentation on player growth and development in the information age. What a great topic. And uh, it was just a wonderful presentation. So I encourage everyone to check it out on coachtube.com. And, uh, you know, we're going to shift a little bit from there and get into a little bit of talk about transition offense and defense. And uh, coach, maybe first off, tell me why these numbers matter. In 2020, first in the NBA in half-court offense, Dallas at a 1.02 points per possession, and 30th in the NBA in transition offense was the New York Knicks with a 1.03 points per possession. Yeah, I think we're all, with all the new information out there, we're all trying to figure out the way to use statistics to to help more more than anything uh, communicate communicate our message to our players, right? And, and I think those are pretty simple numbers that, hey, the absolute best half-court offense in the league last year was not as good as the least efficient transition offense. So the more we can run, the more we can attack when the defense isn't set, and then the more that we can get our defense set and be on the same page defensively. Like those are the most important possessions in a lot of games. We're all lucky for this era of these stats that point that out because the game's more fun when we play fast and you're seeing that, right? The pace of play has gone up over, you know, the last, what would we say? Five, six years. Yeah. You know, I think throughout the league, obviously coach D'Antoni has had a huge impact on, the spacing and then the value of the three point shot and the seven seconds or less, which is, gosh, I don't, I mean, is that 15 years ago? They wrote that 10 to 15 years ago. So um, he was ahead of the curve. Uh, I think San Antonio, when they had their great teams for years and years, I can remember um, asking one of our stats guys years ago about, you know, seems like San Antonio gets more layups in the fourth quarter than other teams is there. Like, do they run more than, than other teams in the fourth quarter? And I, and I thought the answer was really interesting that it wasn't that they ran more. It was that they ran the same as they did in the first three quarters and the rest of the league slows down. So, um, you know, obviously transition is super important and, I think also a reminder to your players that even in the fourth quarter, you want to not be out of control, but but play at a pace where you can take advantage of any mistakes that the uh, the opponent makes. That is such an awesome point about uh, sustained pace, because I remember so many games going into scouts and talking to our players and saying, listen, let's just be outstanding in the first five minutes in defensive transition and the team will not maintain their pace, especially when we're playing on the road. And we found that all the time. So are there stats and are there certain teams that sustain that pace more consistently than others? Because that ultimately would be a sign of a team that's bought in completely to transition. Right, 100%. I I mean, obviously San Antonio has been that for a long time. Um, I, I think Milwaukee has really done the opposite and you know, Mike Budenholzer being in San Antonio and, and having a lot of the same beliefs. They they had saw great value in transition offense, and then they saw great value in transition defense. So Milwaukee had, I think, historically one of the best transition defenses in, in the league last year. And so obviously they place a great priority on that. And, so, and following up what you said, as you watch them and how they play, it's just the consistent effort. It's just that they treat every possession like it's the same. 
And I want to get back to that effort, but I, I guess my initial thought is, so kind of a chicken or the egg type of thing. Like we want to be great in defensive transition, but we want to be great in offensive transition. So which one are you teaching first in your philosophy? Uh, I, I think you play, teach basketball, right? I think you teach winning. You, you teach multiple efforts at both ends of the court. I, I don't personally think you have to pick and choose. Um, I, I, I fall back on like Larry Brown when he was with the Detroit Pistons and he just said, play the right way. You know, like that, that's what you're trying to teach your players on a daily basis. And even, even before you get to play the right way, it's, you know, live the right way and, and treat people the right way. And so do you want to be the guy that jogs in transition on offense or doesn't get back on defense? Or do you want to be the guy that when he's on the court, he competes as hard as he can? Well, we know each other a little bit, so you know my answer would totally agree with that, which is the fact that you're, you're, you're doing both at the same time. So it's exactly what you're saying, that you get an opportunity to be able to develop both at the same time. And to be really good as an offensive transition team, you have to be able to go against really good defensive transition and be able to still, as you've said, sustain this pace. Yeah, it's you hold yourself to a standard at both ends, and, and I think – Everybody's doing a really good job these days of giving video feedback to, to our players at, at both ends. And so I, I just think that's a process over the course of the year and the environment you create that you your players will embrace whatever you prioritize. And if you prioritize transition at both ends of the court, they'll they will embrace that. Talk to me about defensive focus and quality then in terms of development. Yeah, I've, I mean, so. A couple of years ago when Milwaukee had that first year of just absolutely shutting people down in transition, I was really interested in it and, and tried to do a deep dive into watching all of their possessions. A few years before, I had done something similarly at the offensive end of, of watching the best transition offenses and just seeing if there was anything that, that rang true for, for all of them. And kind of what I came away with was defensively, like you really have to focus on quality. You know, it's never one thing, but if you had to sum it up, like the quality of your defense, you, you probably have a lot more control over than really cutting a team's possessions down on a game to game basis. Each team has their offensive philosophy. And if they're a running team, if it's Toronto, like they're going to run, right? You're not going to be able to take away five transition possessions on them, most likely. So how good your transition defense is, is really important. But then at the offensive end, you want to really focus on quantity. Like, get let's get more and more transition possessions. And like I said, it's not you do that to the exclusion of the other, but uh, it's just kind of a simple way that I've, um, you know, measured it in my own mind as, as I'm trying to present it to the guys. Well, and it makes sense. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's not as complicated as sometimes we can make it be. And that's what comes back to what you've already said a little bit about emphasis, and that's effort and urgency. Yeah. that, And again, going back to Milwaukee, I think they're the best example. Um, and a guy that they actually, I think, will not be with them this year, I give a lot of credit to is Eric Bledsoe. Because he, when you go through and you watch his impact on their defense, he not only does he make some multiple effort plays where he's sprinting to get to a shooter and there's an overall urgency, but he has a very unique way of, of defending. Uh, I think Chris, you have, I'm sure you've watched them a good bit. And um, Eric is not like the traditional, my man, me, the basket defender. He, he is constantly trying to read the play and take away what the offense is trying to do and, and will deny and will top lock and will play the play, right? Is what you'd say when you're growing up. Um, but why he's able to get away with it, I think is also part of the reason why they're so good in transition is because he's always just going to take who's ever closest to him. And he's going to be an excellent communicator in letting people know like, hey, I can't get to my man. I'm going to point. I'm going to talk, take him. He's like, as I watched it more and more, I was just very, very impressed with what a good communicator he was in the half court and then in transition as well. And I think the way he plays, it, it leads to that. Hey coach, a quick interruption from this episode for a mention from our supporters, 
who, without them, this podcast would not be possible. By using the links I mentioned in these advertisements, it enables me to continue providing this podcast for free for you. The wait is finally over. Football is in full effect, with many teams strutting their stuff. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on everything imaginable this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than any place online. Head to Bet Online today and use promo code ARMCHAIR, that's ARMCHAIR in all capitals, to take advantage of all the great sign up bonuses. Bet Online. Your online sportsbook experts. So the uniqueness of the player obviously is a part of that, but I'm wondering what your takeaways were in, ter- in terms of things that you could teach your players to be able to say, hey, you can do some of these things too. Is it to a specific player? Is it to more than uh, you know one player? What are some of those things that you took away that you can teach? It's, you know, it's not brain surgery, right? This is all stuff that we've taught and, and we've said it and we have different ways of communicating it, but it's everybody has to get a man. And in transition, you might not be matched up with the guy that we said in the pregame talk that you're matched up with. You know, the basket is the priority. The ball is the priority. And then you just got to find the nearest guy. So um, I think a number that's really interesting over the years as I've looked at both the offensive and the defensive end is in the NBA, and this is a couple of years ago, so they might've changed slightly, but on average, there were about seven disadvantage breaks for every advantage break. So uh, it's kind of a weird way of saying it, but it's basically there's seven times more that the offense actually has less guys than the defense back and the offense shoots. And I think as coaches, when we're going through tape, and I'm sure you feel the same way, the number of times where you give up a transition shot or layup or three, it's not because you don't have enough players back. It's because you have two guys that ran to the same guy or one guy assumed, oh, he had the ball, but you didn't, no one declared the ball, right? So it all, it all falls back on being a great communicating team and and being a multiple effort team of somebody declaring the ball that helps if somebody declares the ball then I know it's not my man and I can start looking for someone else but if we don't point if we don't talk and there is that moment of indecision that's where really good teams take advantage well I really like the way you presented that that's you're right it is a little bit different way of thinking about it but it it does make more sense in a in a way like it's not a question of not having enough back it's a question of communication which focuses that back to that and what what are some communication cues that we can use as coaches maybe that you found most useful Uh, i think that's really unique i'm honestly that's not my thing on our staff i'm not very good at giving like catchy names that that everyone (laughs) like scott morrison is is an absolute master at it like he can think about something and he'll come up with a name or he'll, he'll use a, a player that he sees does it a lot. And it's, it's really, really helpful for our players to remember it that way. I'm kind of the guy that notices something and says, I don't have a good name for this, but this happens a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, that's great. Uh, I'm curious then with the Bledsoe example too. I mean, there, there's different philosophies uh, in terms of ball pickup and where you want to pick up the ball and, uh, you know, a propensity of, you know, where uh, rebounds would go as well. So are, are we giving players details on that where, you know, defensive rebounds usually end up here. So this is where you can position yourself. Are we getting that detailed to be able to help pressure the ball, stop the ball, jam the ball, whatever we're talking about? There's been years we've had teams that that were not as good um, on the defensive glass. Uh, And we found that, you know, that old Jason kid area around the elbows that they're, you know, they're not, it's the one loose ball you don't get, right? It's like one loose ball, a game that you're not getting that, that takes you from a top 10 rebounding team to a, to the middle of the pack or or bottom 10 team. Um, So I, I think at least in our organization and and brad is you know obviously i should have said that from the beginning i'm really blessed that i get to work for who i think is the best coach in the league and the best defensive coach in the world um and he's so good because he he 
he makes things so simple for the players and um, really just presents with what is the most important things to help us win that next game. Um, so are there times where we're playing a good rebounding team and we'll emphasize that a little bit more? Yeah, but um, I think we more go back down to just our basics of of a, you know, just making the right play. Yeah, well, and again, come back to simplicity in that sense. And and great coaches are able to make things simple for players. And uh, that speaks to language. It speaks to obviously a real, real good philosophical background about how to approach things. Curious then going to the offensive side then with some of the, and you've talked about studying both sides. So you've obviously studied both sides and some of the historically best teams. So what have been some of your takeaways about the offensive focus? Yeah, so we touched on a little bit already. We said that if if defense is is really about quality, then offense is about quantity. And so a good example is this year, Phoenix had the best points per possession transition offense in the league at like 1.19 and about 18 possessions a game. And so that worked out to be about 22 points a game they scored in transition. Toronto was third and was a little bit less, was 1.15 as opposed to 1.19. But they had 24 possessions. So they're scoring 28 points a game in transition. So I, I think that's the number one thing is you just create an environment uh, and a value to transition possessions, first of all. And uh, you know every chance we get, we wanna push the pace, take advantage of of any mistakes the opponent might make in their communication. Um, and, and then again, to going back to disadvantage and advantage, uh, I'm sure you grew up, I grew up with playing three on two, two on one, right? That's the transition drill you do. Yep. But that's two advantage breaks, right? And we're saying that set more likely it's going to be where we don't have as many guys. So how are we going to get a good shot when we're not out three on two or two on one? And the way I've always looked at it is if we're at a disadvantage, then we need to wait for a screen, whether that's a wide pin, whether that's a ball screen, whether that's a step up. And that screen then creates the advantage break, you know? So it's really, really important for your point guard to, to be able to see the game and the moment he catches the ball, he's got to be calculating right away. Do we have an advantage? Yes. All right. Then we're pushing it. Either I'm passing it up ahead or I'm driving it. Do we not have an advantage? No. Okay. I'm going to slow down a little bit and I'm going to use teamwork and just figure out a way that we can create an advantage as in as quick a way as possible. So I'll just, I'm going to just last thing on that. Um, is kind of the thing I've fallen on and I try to repeat the most with our guys. If, if we want to be a good transition team and if you want your team to be a good transition team, you got to get your guys to run faster without the ball and you got to slow down a little bit with the ball. Well, and that was going to be my next question a little bit is that that in between area of uncertainty and then what some of the cues are. And that's really, really on the point guard to be able to make that decision. Right. About when to when to flow into a ball screen, when to flow into some secondary actions, but without making it an emphasis. And I think that's what if I reflect back on so many of these great coaches 20 years ago, like such a big thing used to be secondary breaks. But in a way, secondary breaks took away primary breaks because we were so focused on running secondary breaks. And that's not the case anymore. No, I agree. The um, I think one thing, even just going back a little bit, is how you view transition offense and, and helping your players understand the situation. Because I think a lot of players grow up there, especially at our level, they were the best athletes always. Right. They were the fastest, jumped the highest, the strongest, the biggest. So some of them grow up thinking that transition is a race. You know, it's just the fastest one to get to the rim. That's what transition is. And you, over time, you need to help them understand that it's not a race. It's not. It's really one on one with a little bit more space and less help. That's what you want it to be. If if 
when you get the ball, you treat it as a race. Then however many guys are back on defense, they're going to realize it's a race too, and they're going to all race with you. But if you have the composure and the knowledge and, and just the poise to realize this is not a race, this is, I have a chance to play one-on-one against this player, my defender, without any help, with all this space, without a defense set, and I might be able to beat him and then kick it out for a three, or my teammate is out ahead. If you're composed enough to see that and use some deception to allow, as you're going in transition, allow the help to recover to their men and not feel like that sense of urgency to protect the rim because you're going a little bit slower with the ball, and the guys without the ball are sprinting like crazy to get good spacing, then I think your transition offense is really going to benefit. I uh, Years ago, I was, I forget exactly why I started it, but I was looking at transition three-point shooters, and I was watching Clay Thompson. I was watching uh, Anthony Morrow was a guy at the time, and and it really stuck out with Anthony Morrow and Russell Westbrook Anthony Morrow ran as hard as he could. And Russell Westbrook, we all know, like he's going to push it as hard as he can. But by Russell attacking and taking maybe one more dribble, trying to get to the rim because that's what he loves to do, it allowed Morrow to get his feet set, allowed when he kicked out that he was all ready and he made a super high percentage of those shots. So I think that's another part of the point guard's job is – you want to deliver the ball for, for a shot, whether that's a layup or a three, it's not just throwing it ahead to throwing it ahead. Right. So if I can take one more dribble, if I can be slightly more patient to allow my shooter to get his feet set and he's going to make that at 10% more than he would, if he has to rush, then that, that's really, really important to practice. So many things just came up in my mind as you're talking. So I want to go through some of them and get your thoughts. So let's start with the one you ended with, which is this Russell Westbrook scenario. Is this as simple as telling a point guard to push it till you're stopped? Because I think, again, too often point guards push and they stop themselves to flow into, again, a ball screen or some other action. But if you're one-on-one, you go till you're stopped, which essentially means drawing help, correct? For sure. Yeah, I, I think it always starts with like, you, you have to know the numbers when you get the ball as you approach half court. You have to know what the situation is. And and then you just make the right decision. There was a there was a really good article a couple years ago, probably eh, maybe more than I realize now. But uh, John Wall was, was giving a lot of credit, I believe, to Sam Cassell, who was with the Wizards at the time. And John Wall was the fastest guy end-to-end in the league, right? He... he He was that kid that was always the fastest, that always treated transition as a race. And he said after whatever third, fourth year in the league that Sam had really helped him understand, like just to slow down a little bit. And by slowing down just a little bit, now he's hitting Bradley Beal in all these three-point situations. And they're really, really dangerous. We had a really tough series with them when, when both those guys were, were healthy and, um, I have a ton of respect for both those guys. I'm also curious, as you mentioned, basically it's one-on-one with more space. And I've kind of always framed half-court offense in a similar way. So I'm curious if you talk about it the same in the sense that however you create this advantage in the half-court or in transition, essentially for a player, it's one-on-one before it's five-on-five. And you want to have that attack mentality, especially in this modern spacing game, correct? For sure. For sure. You, um, you're always anticipating what's happening next. Right. And if you're just catching and holding the ball or you you don't know when you're at, when an advantage is created and you don't take advantage of it, like that's, yeah, that's just part of, you know, being a good basketball player, like being it's, I, I do my job so that my teammates can do their job. Well, you know, the other thing that I, I want to drive home is this this point about the seven to one disadvantage advantage break, and like it's such such a key part of this is that you're okay, and to 
to be able to push a pace, as you said, with, with the Phoenix or Toronto type of numbers that you have to be okay taking some disadvantage shots, but they're still open shots. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a lot of debate now, right. With the statistics and the, the analysis of what's a good shot and um, obviously wanting to get to the rim and wanting to get fouled and wanting catch and shoot open threes. Like the, the world is getting more comfortable. What, what we all feel are good shots. You know, I, my dad is a coach. I, I grew up in the gym since as long as I can remember, like I, I have the arrogance to feel like I can tell you what a good shot is for each guy. <laughs> you know, I, I think you should always, you should shoot when you're shooting a shot, your teammates should expect you to shoot that shot. If you're shooting a shot that surprises your teammates, maybe that's not a good shot. And how do you communicate that back to those players that maybe struggle with that understanding to start with? Is it just a question of sitting them down, being honest, video, et cetera? You know, all the transition stuff, all the X and O stuff is, is not nearly as important as the relationships you build with the guys on your team. You know, those are that those are that's not one conversation. That's that's building a relationship and building a common understanding of what good basketball is and what what our team believes is good basketball. And how do I make my teammates better? How do, how do I make the game easier for my teammates? How do they make the game easier for me? How, how does our coaching staff help each player contribute to our, our group success and their individual success? Because that's, that's, that's something that maybe in college or high school, it's looked at differently, but, but when guys become pro athletes and, and I have the, I'm the good fortune to get to work with them, like their individual success is really important to me too. You know, it's, it's not just, I don't think it's mutually exclusive. I, I think that players can maximize their individual potential and, and the team can maximize our collective potential. If, but, but again, I think that starts with just the relationships you build and, and caring about each other. Such a tremendous point. And, uh, you know, certainly knowing your background and, you know, all the different, not just your coaching background, but your playing background as well. And then obviously your relationship with your dad and so many coaches, it's inevitable. This question is how do you now practice all this? Cause the NBA is different, right? You just don't have as many practices, but if you were to put your college or high school coaching hat on, what are you doing to develop both of these concepts of defensive transition and offensive transition? Peer pressure. I had the best learning learning experience when uh, I graduated college. I went overseas to begin my professional career in Europe. My younger brother was entering his senior year of high school and was lucky enough to play for Stu Vetter, St. John's at Prospect Hall. And he was teammates with Damian Wilkins and Jason Capel. And they ended up winning the, the national championship that year. And I, I went to go see them play one of their very first scrimmages in the summer. And they ran harder than any college team I'd ever seen. And it, it was demanded by the head coach. There was a standard that was set, but it was really reinforced by each individual player. And obviously, as, as the coach, you, you set the standard. And, um, and then you have to have a group of, of players that, that believe in that and that are are willing to enforce it even when when you're not you know the there has to be accountability among the guys that are on the court that are that are you know fighting and sweating with each other each day uh, having been obviously in some of those situations and thinking about those like one of the one of the challenges with what you're talking about is actually teaching your players how to hold each other accountable in the right way and have you given much thought to that in terms of how you actually communicate to young players, hey, this is okay to hold people accountable because you've got to create this environment where it's safe to do so, but also just as important so the other players will welcome it. One of the first things you have to do is like, you have great belief in your players and, and I have great belief in all of the guys I work with of their ability to grow and, and their potential to excel. Um, and we had a great Brad had a, had a great coach Jim Crutchfield. It was I, Chris. He, you were there. You were. I was there. Yeah. yeah. And 
absolute stud, right? Yeah, he's tremendous. Yeah, and he he had the greatest line, and he he had a great example of an old Morgan Wooten drill he showed of, and it basically came with way saying, most players do just enough not to get in trouble and not enough to make a difference. And he was talking about running, right? He's like, they'll, they're going to jog kind of with the pack down on offense. They're going to jog with the pack down on defense. And they're just not maximizing their physical potential for a lot of the time they're on the court. How do you hold people accountable? The number one thing is you set expectations, right? This is what we expect. This is our standard. This is what you're capable of. And there's different ways of showing that. You, but, but having a standard is, is really, really important. And having the player's belief that, yes, I can live up to that standard because um, sometimes they don't realize it. But, you, know, you know, you've coached a million guys that say, no, I'm playing hard. And so, again, going back to how we started, having really statistical, just objective information of ways to share with them that, you are capable of more than this. And, um, you know, obviously at the NBA level where we have every tool available that, to do that. Um, and so you, I'm just constantly trying to do that. And, and again, this is, I don't think it's unique to basketball. I think that's what being a parent is too, right? Is trying to demand the most you possibly can from your kids while still being really, really loving and, and, and letting them know how much you care about them and how much you believe in them, but teaching them how to do tough things. Hey coach, a quick interruption from this episode for a mention from our supporters who without them, this podcast would not be possible by using the links I mentioned in these advertisements. It enables me to continue providing this podcast for free for you. The wait is finally over football is in full effect with many teams strutting their stuff. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at bet online. BetOnline is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on everything imaginable this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than any place online. Head to BetOnline today and use promo code ARMCHAIR, that's ARMCHAIR in all capitals, to take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. BetOnline, your online sportsbook expert. Listen up, fellows, because today we have a new Manscaped product alert. Manscaped just released the Weed Whacker Nose and Ear Hair Trimmer. Take a look in the mirror and I guarantee you'll see hair sticking out of those holes. It's time to keep your ear and nose hair looking as nice as your clean-shaven pubes. Manscaped is forever changing the grooming game with their Weed Whacker. The Nose and Ear Hair Trimmer provides proprietary skin-safe technology, which helps prevent nicks, snags, and tugs in those delicate holes. The premium Manscaped Weed Whacker uses a 9,000 RPM motor-powered 360-degree rotary dual-blade system. Its intelligently contoured design enhances the trimming experience and it is waterproof, which makes for easy operation and cleaning. Look, fellas, 79% of partners polled admitted that long nose hair is a major turnoff. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code armchair at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code armchair. What are you waiting for? Go whack your weed. Thank you, Manscaped, for keeping our pubes trimmed and hairs in our holes looking nice. Now back to the podcast. I love they brought up the Crutchfield example because one of my takeaways was was immediately, you know, we've all been in these situations where a player will say, but but I got my check or I am running hard because I'm at the level of my check or you know whatever that may be and it was kind of like this this pack mentality right as long as i'm in the pact coach can't say that i'm not doing my job but what he was asking for is that next level beyond that which is really where the difference is made yeah it's i always go back to like what's your what is your standard you know like i'm really lucky i get to work with jason tatum i think he's one of the best players in the world and is going to be for a long time and Jason can shoot three pointers and he can make nine out of 10. And that might not be maximizing his potential. Nine out of 10 threes, NBA threes for the rest of the world. Like, wow, really good. And, and Jason could make seven out of 10 and people would tell him, Hey, that's really good, man. You're really good. But 
me being around him and knowing how special he is, I have to have the difficult conversation of telling him nine out of 10 is not good enough. You're capable of 10 out of 10. So I don't know how you do that. I would love to help you. Sometimes coaches can help. Sometimes coaches just have to step away and say, you got to figure this out, but you're capable of more. And I think that holds true in all the different parts of the game. Well, that's what a tremendous example that is. And, and what, and as you said, what a tough conversation in a sense, but it's absolutely necessary for the best players on down to be able to get that honest, again, push, challenge, feedback, whatever you want to say with that. And uh, is it a different conversation with a younger player than it is with someone who's more established, like, like obviously Jason Tatum is at this point in his career? No, I think every relationship is different. Yeah. I, I think getting to know each player's personality and, and what works for them is just takes time, you know? So all conversations are not the same. All ways of communicating with players are not the same because all, we're, all of us are different people. All of our, we all communicate differently. We all interpret people communicating to us differently. You know, so someone, some player might need more love and might need more positive encouragement. Someone else might really need to, and even ask you at times, hey, hold me accountable. You got to get on me. Like, don't let me get away with this. But those conversations don't happen until they really believe that you care about them, right? Like, it's not just a job. It's that, you know, you really, really want them to do well, not not only for the team, but for them and for the person they are and for the family that they have. And um, again, I'll go back to my dad. I'm just, I'm just lucky that I grew up in an environment where that's what basketball was. You know, the team was my family. The players were over at my house having dinner and I was traveling on the road and going to practices and hanging out. So, um, I mean, I've been really, really lucky. I've just had basketball has been part of my life uh, for my whole life. And, um, and now to be in Boston with the group of guys that we have now, uh, again, uh, really, really lucky. Absolutely. What a, what a cool upbringing that would be. And, uh, I'm curious with, well, hold on, hold on. Cause it's not, <laughs> not all roses too. Cause I, oh, no doubt. <laughs> you know, all those like coaches and coaches, sons out there. I was also, um, in junior high and high school when there was speculation that my father was going to be fired from Bowling Green State University. And I had friends whose dads were sports writers writing that he should be fired and couple fights at school defending my dad's honor so it's it's been the positive far outweighs the negative but it hasn't all been perfect either oh no doubt no doubt challenges everywhere and uh and, and uh i'm curious then with um talking about uh pace of play transition offense transition defense if you're going to play against the best transition offense team or the best defensive transition team are there things that you're adjusting for game plan and scout based on those, or does it still just all come back to the foundation that you've already laid? So every team is different, right? You are always trying to take away what their best thing is. So that could be different for different teams. What are they looking for in transition? If it's Giannis or LeBron bringing the ball down the court, well, there's a lot of attention on the ball handler. You know, if it's uh, Kyle Korver or, um, you know, Trey Young, let's say, for example, Kyle Korver is sprinting uh, to the corner. You have to be ready for him or he's coming off a wide pin. We all have to be ready for that. Trey Young, we have to pick him up really high. When it's LeBron, when it's Giannis, the whole our help has to be pulled in protecting. So you're, you're constantly just trying to identify what are their best things and how can we take them away or at least minimize them as much as possible. Right. Like. Um, where do you get the most bang for your buck? You know, that's, that's where you want to spend your time and energy and what, and again, I'll go back to Brad. That's what Brad communicates to our guys. He doesn't complicate it. He'll say, these are the three things we need to do. And, and he does a really, really good job of not only communicating in that, communicating that, 
but then also coming up with ways in a walkthrough or in a practice to to physically practice it and um, and help them just be ready to do it when the game starts. Yeah, it's tremendous, tremendous to hear that. And uh, coach, uh, this is probably all a good segue into something that I thought was incredibly valuable that you shared at the at the Pro Coaches Summit, and that's some some things around types of feedback, which we probably don't talk about enough. And I'm hoping that you can kind of get into this a little bit for all the listeners as well and talk a little bit about the types of feedback. So that to me, feedback's the key to, to improvement. You know, I used the example when one of our other assistants, Joe Mazzula, gave me a hard time, or I don't know if he gave me a hard time. He enjoyed me sharing a conversation I had with my son about feedback. And so we were riding in the car and, um, and I asked him, I said, James, do you think I'm a good singer? You know, we always have the radio on in the car and we'll have the radio on at home. And he looked at me, he's like, no, you're terrible. Like, you're absolutely a terrible singer, but you sing all the time. And I said, yeah, that's right. Like, why? I, I said, I have 10,000 hours of singing in. They say that to be an expert at something, you need 10,000 hours. I guarantee I've sang in the car and in the shower 10,000 hours. I'm getting old. I'm 45. And he thought about it and he's like, he's heard all my speeches I've given to him. He says, well, cause you're not passionate about it. And I said, I honestly can say that that's not it because I sing passionately. I, I, um, I really enjoy it in my head. I think I sound good, even though I, you have told me over and over, I'm, I don't, I can't tell the difference. And he thought some more and he couldn't come up with anything. I said, basically it's some feedback. I don't know what I sound like. It's what I just told you. Like I need someone else to actually tell me, this is what you sound like. And it's really bad, but these are the things you can do to sound better. And I said, I'm basically like a guy in his backyard shooting hoops that has a terrible shot and no one's corrected him and he can't figure it out because we're so bad at knowing what we look like as humans. You know, we think every one of us thinks we have a picture perfect jump shot and everyone's shot looks a little bit different. So I, that's, that's my little spiel about how important feedback is. And then we talked a little bit about. So, so wait a minute, are we to understand you're actually not a good singer? <laughs> uh, depends who you ask. If you ask anyone in my family, they definitely say no. Um, what, do you want to sing now for us? I do have a growth <laughs> mindset, and I'm not saying uh, – this is what I'll say. Up until this point in my life, I have not been a good singer, but I could become a good singer with the right feedback and coaching. <laughs> love it. I love it. I love it. I'm the same coach. We're all good there. Uh, so maybe let's get into some of the types of feedback. Uh, you want to talk about uh, you know visual feedback, yeah. auditory, tactile? Sure. Yeah, like so visual is – dominates just what we see, right? It dominates all the information that goes to our brain. And then you have auditory feedback is anything you're hearing. You can have tactile feedback, anything you're feeling. And I, I'd say the area that we as coaches use the most is auditory. You know, we are constantly telling someone what to do, do this, do that. And it's, not really the most effective you know visual feedback is i think so much more effective of you know we've all had the experience of watching video with a player and finally being able to to show them this is what i'm talking about and they can see it and you know the old adage like the tape don't lie like it's not lying it's right there and so i i would push Coaches, as, as much as we watch film for games and practice, I, I would encourage you to, to film your, your skill sessions as well. I'd encourage you to, to have some mirrors in your gym, just like you have in a weight room or you, you have in other places, helping players really visualize better what they look like. The thing that we've probably incorporated the most recently, as opposed to coaching a guy, is coming up with some kind of beat that helps them. You know, basketball is a game of rhythm. Basketball is a game of confidence and feel. And so we've done done a lot recently of 
what's what's the rhythm of that like what's the rhythm of that shot you know like if you're shooting a free throw you, you're down for a second and then you release it how much time is it in between that are you holding on to the ball too slow too long are you getting off getting it off too quickly how much pace are you putting on each dribble when you're shooting a free throw and then similarly with with dribbling i think on that on the talk you're talking about i had I had broken down Tim Hardaway's killer crossover to to a metronome to to help. It was actually for my son to to help him better understand the speed of the dribble. He was he kept emphasizing the between the legs and going softer on the crossover. And over and over, I keep telling him, no, it's you're going hard between the legs, but you got to go even harder to the crossover hard to harder hard to harder and i kept giving him that auditory feedback and he hated it he would i could literally see him physically cringe when i would say hard to harder and so one day i just said listen i'm gonna stop saying that this is what the ball should sound like when you make this move and it was just bop 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 or whatever it was again i'm not the most musically inclined but um it, it was really helpful it 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 made the the feedback I was giving him became much more objective and less personal for him. Um, and, and I think that's a, you know, you go, we go back to talking about relationships and talking about the players you're dealing with and knowing their personalities. Like we're all sensitive to, to criticism. We're all sensitive to feedback. Um, in Tim Grover's book, Relentless, he has a great line where he says that the only difference between feedback and criticism is how the person takes it. 100 percent yeah, yeah. I, I love i love i love the auditory part of especially and i think that's the part that a lot of coaches haven't spent enough time on uh you know in terms of the rhythm of the game and being able to convey that to players and as you said i, I was fortunate i got to study with a coach named massimo antonelli who did a lot of stuff to music so his whole shtick was music basket and he was literally a dj that he could change the rhythm and the rpms of a song to be able to get a player to work harder or slower. And what that influence brought back to me, not being a DJ was I could do it clapping or do it like a boxer, which is what you just represented there, where you kind of go pow, pow, and you kind of use this different thing to be able to help convey a movement. And the reason I wanted to bring this up is this all comes back to transition too, to be able to explain to players a little bit more about the rhythm and the speed and the pace of different things that you do. For sure. For sure. The, I, I'd say the last thing I, I would touch on, as I re recall the, the conversation we had about feedback, is the last one of tactile feedback. And what I learned from Evan Turner, who's one of the great ball handlers I've been around. And he told me that he, he grew up just going in his basement where it was pitch dark and would just dribble in the dark. And now that 90% that of feedback that your eyes dominate is gone. Right. And so now your hands are feeling every little part of the seam of the ball and it's becoming more and more significant. And and I mean, I can just speak from being around Evan like he has that ball on a string and we all we all have those dribble goggles or we all at one point tried those dribble goggles when we were younger to obscure some of our vision. Like. I'd encourage people to use those as much as you can. You, you you want practice to be more difficult than the game. If you are not able to look down when you're practicing, it's going to be more difficult. The game's going to be easier for you. And did you ask him, because my curiosity around players like that is to ask them certain questions, and I'm assuming you did. Did you ask him how, like, what were some of the keys to him developing that tactile feel? I was so intrigued by the just, you know, closing your eyes or, or being in a, just a, dark room and, and it made a lot of sense to me the and we had a lot of conversations about player development the the thing I always noticed with Evan which might have been the result of of those the way he practiced is the ball spun in his hand a lot like as you see and you'll see some great ball handlers like a Jamal Crawford a Kyrie Evan like it's not just pounding that hard pound like like we just drafted Peyton Pritchard, who we're really excited about. And he, if anyone hasn't seen his dribble workout on YouTube, I highly encourage it. He's got one of the hardest, fastest handles in the league already. And 
Um, so that's one style. But Evan's style was much more the ball is spinning in his hand and it's almost the 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 beats between the dribble. You know, that some of the best moves are, are not the dribble move, it's the hesitation, right? It's what's happening. It's like in music, they'll say it's it's not the notes, it's like how long you pause between the notes that that makes a beautiful song. And and so that that was the one thing I always took from Evan is just watching how the ball would spin in his hand without him carrying it and allow him to mix up the rhythm of his dribble and the moves he made. So in the whole trajectory of saying, okay, on air, nobody there staying on a spot to adding some type of prop to doing it live, right? Live is best, but you can't just go to live and you can't get all your reps out of live. So, oh, no, I'm not, so you misinterpreted me. I'm not saying do stationary dribbling with dribble goggles. I'm saying play with dribble goggles. Okay. And that's what I was going to clarify was that's what we're talking about. Cause I don't want a whole bunch of coaches to say, just do stationary dribbling with goggles. Oh no, yeah. I don't, I don't like stationary dribbling. I don't think it should ever be stationary. <laughs> like that's if you watch. So if you watch Jason Tatum, who's an excellent ball handler, his, when he dribbles, his feet are moving. This is all right. So this is a great point. It, the, the dribbles don't really matter that much. All that matters is that it's not slowing you down from making a really athletic move with your feet. Right. Dribbling so, is more of a footwork type of th- situation than it is actually the dribble. Right. Cause that's what you're talking about. You're talking about leveraging advantage and using that advantage. And most of that comes when footwork and change no, of yeah. pace. Yeah. Very rarely. If you watch the great ball handlers, you watch every, what is it? They make a bunch of dribble moves. They hesitate. And they blow by a guy with their first step, right? And so the ball is not what you're using to beat the guy. The ball is what you're using to deceive the defender from what you're doing with your feet. So doing stuff stationary, like I, I would, anytime we do any type of um, dribbling routine, the guy's feet have to be moving. This is like, that. that's one of my, I guess if you watch me work with players, you watch me with any of our guys, like that a thing I just say over and over again is just the ball can't slow you down. But but everything is about your first step and your last step. Like how quickly can you make your first step? And then how much power do you have on that last step or or hop, whether you're going into a jumper or you're going in to finish at the rim? Like it, it's it's a power and force game and um, so yeah, I, please don't anyone interpret as me saying dribble goggles with, uh, doing like stationary figure eight, like, no, this is, I want like, you want to practice what you're going to do in the game, but you want to make it harder than it's going to be in the game. Brilliant. And, and that's what I want to bring out. I'm really glad you, you said that and you talked about that because it's such a misconception about how to build dribbling, you know, in so many ways. And, uh, you know, I would say even as a starting point, my, my daughters are seven and nine and you know, we don't do any stationary ball handling because it, it just, again, there's no value to that for them. Ultimately, if they play in the game, you can get comfortable and yeah, it's harder to move at first, but the value is there in terms of learning how to move your body and move your feet at the same time. So that's awesome. Really glad we brought that out. Uh, curious, you know, being around some great finishers in your time too, is there any types of takeaways that you've taken from them in terms of how they've developed their ability to finish more consistently than others? Um, so it, it goes in with a lot of things we've already talked about. I'd say, first of all, uh, it's not your man that's going to make you miss at the rim, it's the help. So doing everything you can to eliminate that help through deception, through, like I talked about earlier, of not treating it as a race, you know, of allowing time for the help defenders to guard their men. Um, And then once you do that, just, I I have a friend that has a great line. He, He says, preserve optionality. And which is basically keep your options open, right? And Evan Turner, I'll, I'll talk about him again. When Before Evan signed with us, he was um, 
one of the worst finishers at the rim in the NBA the year before and went through, watched all the clips and just came up with a game plan. And it was basically, you have to take one more dribble. You got to finish on the other side of the rim more often. And his first year with us, he, he really tried to get better at it. And we talked all the time about it. And after every game, here's another example. You should have taken one more dribble. Here's another example. You should have taken one more dribble. Here's an example where you should have finished on the other side of the rim. It's, it goes back to these guys in, at our level have always been the biggest, strongest, best athlete. Evan was the number two pick in the draft. He's always been able to pick the ball up at the three-point line, take two steps, extend below the rim, and still finish around all of the, his competition until he got to the NBA, and now it's the best athletes in the world, and, and they all can do that. So um, I think when you're, when you're working with players, first of all, you got to be deceptive and you have to be aware of the help. And then once you do that, uh, you just have to be patient enough to preserve optionality by taking an extra dribble and, and being aware of times when you can use the rim to protect. And um, I would encourage coaches in, in practice situations of uh, making your guys shoot more reverse layups, making your guys shoot more off of two feet in the paint. Um, we all do drills. We all run some form of five on O or guys do layup lines before every game. You're going to do it. You might as well practice something that's more applicable to, to real games and helping you score and, and helping you be a better finisher. So um, I, I'll go just, I am sorry. Last thing. No, no, keep going. It's great. Yeah. So, so the last part of finishing at the rim, I think the one that guys get in trouble with a lot is big guys, right, on dump-offs. And, and for the most part, you have, you have two options. When you're a guard penetrating, you can lob it to the rim. And at our level, that's going to be a dunk. Or you can throw a bounce pass in the paint. And um, I think something that you can emphasize with your bigs if it's a lob, you want to finish it right away. If it's a bounce pass, that bounce is going to mean the defender's going to have time to react. And again, you're either going to have to finish on the other side of the rim or you're going to need to take a dribble to throw them out of rhythm. Uh, Tiago Splitter was a, was a great player for the Spurs and, and in the league, and he had one of the best catch, dribble, hesitate, finish on the other side of the rim that I've seen he so if you want to watch like some old clips of a guy that wasn't like the most athletic big but did a really good job of finishing because he recognized on a bounce pass that you can't finish on the same side of the rim or you, the bounce pass is slower right so there's going to be somebody there contesting you I love so much of this and it's the detail and, and just again, preserve optionality. I love that. That's, that's brilliant. And what maybe this connects or not, but what I think about, again, I come back to a little bit more youth basketball and think about that, that we've have this obsession of, as coaches on restricting dribbles. And I fully acknowledge you can dribble too much. Like I'm not talking about dribbling on a spot. I'm talking about the problem when we restrict dribbles is when a player drives, if we tell them they're only allowed two dribbles when we play one-on-one -on -one or different things like that, it limits their solutions. And unintentionally, in my opinion, leads to situations where players don't realize one more dribble would actually create more of an advantage. So it's just a curious thought based on what you're saying about the Evan Turner story, because I'm really big on that. I'm not big on restricting dribbles as they're driving. No, I, I totally agree. I think what you don't want is uh, wasted dribbles, useless dribbles, right? We don't want the guy that, going back to what we mentioned earlier, we don't want the guy that wasn't anticipating what he was going to do with the ball, and then he gets the ball, and now I'm going to dribble while I think about what I'm going to do, and I'm going to dribble in the same spot while I'm trying to think about what am I going to do. Like We want players that are anticipating and reacting to the advantages we create, and so as long as you are creating, like my dad will always say, like the goal of offense is to create penetration, right? And 
as long as you're doing that, we have no problem. However many dribbles it takes to do that. We just don't want the wasted dribbles, the wasted time because coaches don't like watching it. Your teammates don't like watching it. Like it's, it's not a fun way to play. That's just awesome thought. And uh, coach, I mean, so many great thoughts throughout. Uh, this has been very stimulating. So uh, I cannot thank you enough for sharing the game with us. No, Chris, it's always fun talking hoops. Um, I, I've learned a lot through our conversations and I've really enjoyed and appreciate how generous you've been to not only me, to my dad, to the basketball community, right? Of just sharing knowledge that you've gained and knowledge that you're getting from other people. And I think it's a really cool thing you're doing. Uh, super appreciate that. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter.